to give you everything that we have, that nothing would be held in reserve, but that all would be spent for you. We thank you for these moments, and we're praying that you would just be at work in our hearts this morning through your word. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, folks. You can have a seat. Some of you may know, because you're such ardent students of history, that there was a time that World War I was known as the Great War. It was known as the Great War because never before in the history of the world had so much of the world been involved in one conflict. Well, of course, you also know that just a few years later, the world was plunged into war again. And World War II dwarfed World War I in terms of uh, the men involved and the equipment and the casualties. Very quickly by, in fact, June of 1940, the Germans had driven the English out of France at the beach in Dunkirk, and Germany controlled all of mainland Europe. Well, some three years later, four years later, by 1944, the Allies knew that the only way they had a chance of winning this war was to make some kind of a physical mainland offensive in Western Europe. And so in January of 1944, General Dwight Eisenhower began to plan what became known as Operation Overlord. In the main offensive, the initial offensive of Operation Overlord became known as D-Day. I'm hoping at least that rings a bell with somebody. Okay, D-Day. On June 6, 1994, British, American, and Canadian troops made landfall at five beaches in the Normandy region of northwestern France. If you've ever watched the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan, that's a depiction of what happened when U.S. troops landed on Omaha Beach early that morning. The fighting was absolutely brutal, and the U.S. lost 2,000 troops just on that one section of beach alone. And the reason for that is the Germans knew that something was coming. And so they put a barricade 2,400 miles long across Western Europe. Obstacles, some 200,000 obstacles on the beach and in the water. They planted landmines. They built machine gun nests to keep the Allies out. But the Allies were determined. They had hundreds of ships and thousands of troops, and they swarmed the beaches, and the cost was great, but by the end of the week, 326,000 troops had landed in Western Europe and had their boots on the ground and were headed across Europe to drive the Germans out. By the end of August, France had been liberated. By the next May, Germany had surrendered, and the war was won in Western Europe. But there was a tremendous cost. Tens of thousands of people gave their lives in order to secure that victory. Now you may be wondering what the connection is for us here today. The connection for us is simply this, that whether we're talking about physical advancements or spiritual, advancing into enemy territory is always difficult 
in a costly endeavor. Our calling as the church is to share the gospel with the people who need it. That's what Christ told his disciples in Matthew 28 and also in Acts chapter 1 when he was preparing to ascend into heaven after he had already given his life on the cross. He had been buried. He rose again. Three days later, he spent 40 days confirming to his followers that he was indeed alive. And just before he ascended into heaven, he said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go into all the world and I want you to preach the gospel. I want you to make disciples. I want you to tell people the truth of what I have done here and the salvation that I have provided. And this morning as we look into this next section of the book of Philippians, we're going to see what Paul is telling us as citizens of heaven. Remember if you were with us last week, we talked about the fact that We are citizens of heaven. We're residents of this earth, but citizens of heaven. And last week, Paul commanded us to pray for the church. And this week, we are going to see that Paul gives us another command, and that is that we are called to advance the gospel. We're called to advance the gospel. And there is a cost to advancing the gospel, by the way, in time and effort and energy and courage and perseverance. It wasn't easy in first century Rome to be a Christian. We talked a little bit about that last week. And it's not easy in 21st century United States of America to be a Christ follower and a disciple either. Nor is it easy to advance the gospel. There are barriers to advancing the gospel. But maybe not the ones that we would think of. If we were going to have a conversation about what it is that keeps the gospel from going forward, what it is that keeps people from hearing the truth and coming to Christ, we might say something like, well, people don't really want to talk about God. They don't want to hear, they don't want anybody in their face talking about spiritual things or they just get angry if I talk about that kind of stuff. Or some might say our culture is so anti-God right now. That's the last thing that, that we can be doing. Perhaps depending on your situation, you might even say, I lose my job if I talk about Christ. I can't do that. Those those are the barriers, Mike. That's what keeps us from advancing the gospel. Well, those things might be true in some cases, but I don't think those are the biggest barriers to advancing the gospel of Christ. You see, all of those barriers are external. Those are things that are out there. What I want to suggest to you this morning is that I think the biggest barriers to advancing the gospel are internal. I think they're internal. I think one of them is our innate desire for comfort and ease. Perhaps... Worrying about how someone will respond is not actually what keeps us from sharing the gospel. It's how it's going to make me feel when they respond the way that they do. We might also suggest that another internal barrier is our penchant for self-focus and self-preservation. As human beings, we're quite concerned with how we feel, aren't we? We're quite concerned with what we have or what we don't have, how the affairs of this world and our communities and our homes affect us. And Paul is going to give us two truths this morning to help us in our quest to advance the gospel and help us to break those barriers down 
in our lives so that the gospel can go forward. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. I want to read the first three verses. We're going to read seven verses this morning. And the first one is Philippians 1.12. I want you to notice what Paul says. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So I want you to see the first truth to breaking down barriers that will help us to break down these barriers to advance the gospel is found here. This is truth number one. God often uses suffering to advance the gospel. He often uses suffering to advance the gospel. Notice what Paul says, I want you to know what happened to me has helped me advance the gospel. Now what has happened to Paul? Well, some of you may have read this passage before or know of it. It's in 2 Corinthians. And there Paul kind of lists out all the things that has happened to him or have happened to him as he has tried to preach the gospel. If you read that, you'd say Paul had said five times he had been whipped. Now I don't know about you guys. Some of you look like you might belong to the era when parents spanked their children maybe a little bit more than they do now. I was I was part of that. I was part of that era. And by the way, I deserved it every time. I don't I can't think of one time that I didn't deserve what I got. I remember um sometimes my mom would discipline me and sometimes my dad would. And I had a hard time figuring out which was least painful. <laughs> My dad has these massive hands, and a swat on my rear end from one of those hands was significant. My mom has very, very tiny hands, but what she had was, you know those real thin sticks that you get at the hardware store that you peel, you um, stir paint with? And that's what she would use, and oh my goodness, that would sting, right? Just on the back of my leg or sometimes a little bit higher, man, that would hurt. Paul, in, in the defense of the gospel, in preaching the gospel, says, I've been whipped five times. Now, the Jews would typically whip people 40 times, but they were so concerned about exceeding that and over-punishing someone that they always whipped them 39 times just in case someone had miscounted They didn't want to go over 40. That's true. And so Paul says, five times I was whipped, 40 times save once. So 39 times. Five times he had been whipped that way. Three times he was beaten with rods, sticks. Once he was was stoned. He was buried halfway up to his waist in the ground and then stoned. That's how they stoned people in those days. Three times Paul was shipwrecked. One time he spent a day and a night floating around in the, in the sea before someone picked him up. Many, many other things that Paul had gone through in the defense of the gospel. But this time he had been arrested one more time for preaching the gospel. He had been thrown in jail and now he had been sent on this arduous journey 
to get to Rome for trial. On the way, one of the shipwrecks occurred. They washed up on this little island of Malta. And when he was on the island and they were trying to get a fire going so that they could get warmed up, he got bitten by a poisonous snake. God miraculously healed him. They continued on their journey. Now he was in prison again. When Paul writes the book of Philippians, he's in Rome and he's in prison for sharing the gospel. And he's waiting for his trial. Now what I want you to know when you see this and when you hear me say this, I want you to understand this is not Paul and the power of positive thinking. He's saying, oh, everything's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. It's nothing. He's not saying that. He's not diminishing it at all. He's not ignoring it. He's not saying none of it affects him or it's easy. He's simply saying God is using it. It's not easy. It's incredibly difficult. In fact, we referred to these verses a couple of weeks ago in 2 Corinthians 9 when Paul prayed and asked God to take away some of his suffering. Please take away this suffering, Lord. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. So it certainly wasn't easy, but Paul's saying God is using it to advance the gospel. The word advance there literally means to chop down what's in front, slowing us down. If you've ever gone out into the woods, if you've ever cut a trail for uh, a hiking trail or a four-wheeler trail or a snowmobile trail or something like that. You might have taken a, a machete with you or a chainsaw or something like that and cut down all the stuff, knock the branches down and cut down the small trees so that you can get through. That's the picture that Paul is using here. Much like the soldiers on D-Day had to crawl up that beach and set mines and blow up those barricades and get to those machine gun nests and, and take out the people that were inside so that the landing craft could get in. That's what Paul is saying. God is using my suffering to chop down some of these things that are in the way of the gospel. Certainly Paul could have said, God, why are you putting me in jail? Why are you putting me in jail? Now here, you've got to notice and understand that Paul was not somebody who just sat on his hands and did nothing. Paul was a guy who was willing to go. He was willing to travel all over the place and preach the gospel to everyone. He had been doing it. And Paul certainly could have said, Lord, if you just let me out of jail, then I'll do some traveling around. I'll keep going and more people will know. How am I going to get to these places if I can't go anywhere? Notice what, it, what Paul says here. He says, everyone knows that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now at this particular time when Paul was in jail, he was chained to a guard 24-7. All day long, every minute of every day, he had a chain connecting him to a guard that was sitting beside him watching him. Of course, this made privacy and escape impossible. But what did that also mean, do you think? Not only could Paul not get away from this guard, but guess what else? The guard couldn't get away from Paul. Guess what the guards started to hear every day for 6, 8, 10, 12 hours at a time? And then what would happen? Shift change. And one guy unshackled himself from Paul, and the next guy came in and shackled himself, and guess what? 
he heard the gospel too. And Paul says this had happened so much that the gospel, notice what it says there, is known throughout the imperial guard. Not only were several of these guys spending hours chained to Paul listening to the gospel, but the ones who heard the gospel and had trusted Christ were sharing it with the other guys that were a part of this regiment. Now you may be sitting there thinking, well, what's the big deal that a bunch of prison guards come to Christ? I mean, you know, prison guards are people too, so we care about them. We want them to come to Christ, but why is it significant? I'll tell you why. Paul says this was the imperial guard. Paul was in Rome, obviously the center of the Roman Empire, and the Imperial Guard was a very specific regiment of soldiers, and their task, among others, was to guard important or influential prisoners. And Paul was considered that because he had, he had appealed to Caesar, and he had caused a lot of disruption all over the Roman Empire, so they're like, we're putting the imperial guard with this guy. We're not going to get the, you know, the guys we pay five bucks an hour. We're not going to use them. We're going to use the guys that are really good. Now, the other thing that the imperial guard did was not only guard important and influential and powerful prisoners, but they also protected the rulers, the senators, the governors, and even Caesar in the Roman Empire. So now these guys that are chained to Paul every day for 6, 8, 10, 12 hours a day who come to understand the gospel, who trust Christ as their Savior, who are sharing it with their friends and co-workers in the regiment are also now spending time with the influential people who are governing the Roman Empire and they're sharing the gospel with them as well. That's what Paul is saying. Now there's no way that Paul would normally have access to all of these people and that's what he means when he says, my imprisonment is for Christ. The gospel is reaching more people because of Paul's arrest and his trials and his time spent in prison. Now, how many people would say, this is counterintuitive, that the harder my life is, the more the gospel will spread? Nobody. Well, I think it's counterintuitive, right? Wouldn't we normally say, God, if you would make my life easier, then I'll do more for you. I think that's the way most of our brains work. This is counterintuitive. You may have heard of a man named John Bunyan. John Bunyan was a preacher in 17th century England. I know this is a lot of history, so I'm sorry. I'm just realizing I'm talking a lot about history, but it, it matters here, okay? So bear with me. In 17th century England, there was not a lot of freedom of religion, not a lot of freedom of worship. If you can think about it a little bit, this is about the time the pilgrims and the Puritans left England to come to the United States. Why? So that they could worship freely. John Bunyan was in England, he was preaching the gospel, and he was causing such a ruckus, and he was saying so many things that were contrary to what the Church of England and the king wanted people to hear and know and think about, that he was thrown in prison. So John Bunyan goes into prison, and in those days, prisons were a big open yard, really, with a few little roofs on the side where you could get out of the weather if you needed to. And so John Bunyan, in the middle of prison, decided to, guess what? Preach the gospel. 
So he started to preach the gospel. And some of the prisoners started coming to Christ. And he would yell as loudly as he could. And people in the surrounding communities began to learn that John Bunyan was in this prison and he was preaching. And people came to hear him. And they would stand outside. It got to the point where the prison was ringed with people from the surrounding communities listening to John Bunyan in prison preach the gospel. This bothered the prison guards and the leaders of the day so much that they locked John Bunyan in the 17th century equivalent of solitary confinement. They were like, we got to get this guy inside so people can't hear him. So they locked him inside. They said, is there anything that you would like while you're inside? Because we're not going to let you talk to anyone. He said, sure. How about some paper and something to write on? While John Bunyan was in prison, unable to preach to people, he wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory of the gospel and what it means to trust Christ as your Savior. Until just a few decades ago, Pilgrim's Progress was the second most published book in the history of the world, second only to the Bible. Because he was thrown into prison, more and more people heard the gospel. Lord, if I didn't have to deal with this, I could be more effective. If you didn't tie my hands like this, if I didn't have to go through this illness, if I didn't have to lose this loved one, if I didn't have to have my job all screwed up, it would be much easier for me to serve you. God says, I'm going to use your suffering. He often uses suffering to advance the gospel. On July 25th, 1995, <clears throat> Melody gave birth to our first son. He was stillborn in Holton, Maine. We didn't have her regular doctor that day because he wasn't on call. We had another doctor. His name was Dr. Mosenfelder. Dr. Mosenfelder was one of those guys who looked like someone had whacked him with a sledgehammer. He looked upset all the time. He was stern. He was cold. He was not a friendly guy. Good doctor, not a friendly guy. As we sat there in the hospital that day and <clears throat> mourned the loss of our son, Dr. Mosenfelder came in a few times to check on us, to check on Melody. And the last time he came in, we saw that he looked like he had been crying. And he stood at the foot of Melody's bed and told us that we were the second pastor and wife who had lost a child that week in that tiny little hospital. We went home. A couple of years later, Melody became pregnant with Gavin because she was a high-risk pregnancy. They sent us to, guess who? Dr. Mosenfelder because he was the specialist. Because of her complications, we ended up spending about an hour every week with Dr. Mosenfelder. And we began to get to know him, and we shared Christ with him. Gavin was born 13 weeks early. We said, God, why is this happening? Why are you sending us all the way to Portland? We started sharing Christ with the people in the NICU at Maine Med. We were there for eight weeks. We lived in the Ronald McDonald House. One time I came in, I had had to go back home to do some things, and I came in to find Melody one night sitting on the couch, 
in the living room of the Ronald McDonald house, sharing Christ with a young couple whose baby was in the NICU with Gavin. God, why are these things happening to us? Why do we have to go through this? God says, I want to use your suffering to advance the gospel. I'm going to use what's happening in your life to put you in places where you would not normally be because in those places are people who need the gospel. Now again, as we look at verse 14, you would think that knowing that someone is going to go to jail for sharing the gospel would discourage others from doing it too. But Paul says the opposite. He says there are people that have become confident and much more bold to share the gospel because I'm in prison. Paul's courage was contagious. Why is that? Well, I think it's because Paul's suffering showed people that he was not a superhero. He wasn't exempt from all the bad things that happen in life. And people looked at Paul and said, if Paul can go through this and still share Christ, then I can do it too. We need to understand, my friends, that when others see our faith, their faith is strengthened. You see, we need to remember that we're in this together. We've talked about this many times over the last couple of years when the church has become so scattered because of everything that has happened. We need to see each other. We need to spend time together. We need to understand what each other is going through. And when others see our faith strengthened, theirs is strengthened as well. Let me continue reading for you. Picking it up in verse 15. Paul said, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So truth number one to help us advance the gospel is that God often uses our suffering. Here's truth number, true, number two. Sorry, the, go <clears throat> the gospel itself is more important than the person preaching it. The gospel itself is more important than the person preaching it. You see, a lot of people didn't like Paul. And you may say, well, you know, I mean, that's obvious. Everywhere he went, preached the gospel, there was a riot. He got thrown in jail. Yeah, a lot of people didn't like him. Um, not just lost people. A lot of other believers didn't like Paul. Nothing is more discouraging than to pour your life into something and be falsely accused or maligned or criticized. And that's what was happening to Paul. It says they're preaching Christ out of envy. The word envy there means spite or bitterness. And it carries with it the idea of somebody that's happy with someone else's misfortune. Seeing someone suffer makes them happier. That's what was happening to Paul. 
not only envy, but rivalry. The word rivalry there means contentious or contention. It means somebody that's ready to argue or loves to argue. At the risk of sharing too much personal information here, I'm in my 29th year of pastoring and preaching and caring for families and ministering to people who are struggling and caring for folks that have lost loved ones. I've done about 150 funerals, and every one of them I've preached the gospel. But in almost 30 years, I've probably only had maybe two or three serious run-ins with a lost person over something that I've said or something that I've preached or something that I've done. Only a couple of times has somebody really gotten in my face about it <laughs> and been very upset. However, probably 15 or 20 times over the past almost 30 years has another Christ follower gotten very upset with me over something that I've preached or said or done. Paul says it's contentious, it's bitter. That's what was happening to Paul. Verse 16, Paul says, not everybody is like this. Some are preaching from goodwill and love. They had the best interests of the church at mind. Remember last week, if you were here with us, I talked about that love that motivates us, Christ's love, the only kind that's durable enough for what it is that God's calling us to do. Christ's love, by the way, is not just for each other. It's for the church at large. It's for the lost. And what Paul wants us to understand here is that the church and our fellow Christ followers and the lost and their need, all of these things are more important than us. Paul says they understand that I was put here for the defense of the gospel. The word put here, or the phrase put here, literally means appointed. It really carries with it the idea of destiny. Destiny. I don't know how you guys feel about destiny. Actually, it's one of the things that we talk about in some of our theology classes. And how you guys feel about it. But Paul said... I'm here for this. I'm here for all of this, including the difficulty. That's why God put me on this earth. We often make the mistake of presuming that God put us here on this earth to simply enjoy our lives, to simply get everything that we can to procure comfort and ease. God does bless us often and provide us with many of these things, but that's not our purpose here on earth. Our purpose on earth is to glorify God. Paul's purpose on earth was to be there at that time suffering for the gospel. He was there on purpose, for a purpose. The second time Paul uses rivalry there, it's actually a different word. In our English Bible it says rivalry twice, or in my version it does, 
But the second time, it means self-seeking ambition. It means self-love, self-focus, self-interest, self-preservation. In fact, what some people were saying because Paul was in prison was, good, now that he's out of the way, we can do it our way. Imagine how discouraging that was to Paul. It's not discouraging it was to Paul to think, I've poured my whole life into this, and now that I'm set aside, so there's some people that are happy about it. But what I want you to notice here at the very end of our passage is Paul's reaction to it. I read it a few moments ago. I'll read it for you again, verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Paul is simply overjoyed that the gospel is advancing. They were preaching the truth, but it was their motives that were wrong. The doctrine was okay, but their motivation was obviously really messed up. And Paul says, I'm just thankful that the gospel is being preached. Even if it is being preached in pretense, the word pretense means underlying reasons or motives. We have other examples of this in the, in the Bible. You know the story of Jonah. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh because there were a lot of wicked people there and they needed to hear the gospel. And so Jonah said, okay, that sounds good, Lord. And he hooked it around and went the opposite direction. Well, for those of you who don't know the story, through a series of interesting circumstances... Jonah, in fact, finds himself in Nineveh, and God tells him again. Jonah preached the gospel to the people in Nineveh. Jonah still did not want to do this. Do not elevate Jonah too high. He still didn't want to do that. That's obvious as we read the whole book. But he did preach the gospel. And what happened? They repented. God used it, and they repented and were saved. Paul says, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. My friends, the proclamation of Jesus Christ is more important than anything. In fact, it's more important than the person who is sharing it. Whether it's you or anybody else. What does Paul command the church? As the citizens of heaven, you are called to advance the gospel. I want to ask you a couple of questions here as we get ready to close. First of all, what's happening in your life right now? What's happening in your life? Is it something difficult? Is it something painful? Are you questioning why God would allow it to happen? If so... Let me suggest that it could be that God wants to use this situation to advance the gospel in your circle of influence. What did Paul say? That others would know that my imprisonment is for Christ. What would you say? What could you say? That others would know that my illness is for Christ. Or that others would know that the loss of my loved one is for Christ. Or that others would know that the way I handle this situation at work is for Christ. I want to challenge you this morning. 
If you're a citizen of heaven, if you're a Christ follower, be bold and take courage. If you know the gospel, share the gospel. The cool thing about boldness is it births boldness. You know this in your life because at some point you have looked at your buddy next to you and said, I don't know, if you'll do it, I'll do it, right? Now, sometimes that doesn't always end well. Sometimes it could be something that maybe we shouldn't do. But the principle is true. Boldness births boldness. When we look at those on either side of us, behind us, in front of us, and we see their courage, it rises up in us. We're in this together. And I want you to be thinking about this over these next few hours, these next few days. There is something more important than your comfort and ease. There's something more important than the personalities and attitudes of those who preach the gospel. And it is the advance of the gospel in this community. Sometimes God will use your suffering to do that. Sometimes God will use someone that you don't see eye to eye with to do that. We have to ask ourselves, are we willing to be set free from our love of comfort? Are we willing to be set free from our self-focus? What matters? I want you to be thinking about this. Christ alone matters. Last week I told you that in the Greek language, the word joy and the word grace are almost identical. Paul says he rejoiced that the gospel was being preached. Why did he rejoice? Why did he delight in God's grace while he lived in prison, while people criticized him, while he gave up everything that he knew and loved? He rejoiced because he knew that none of us are anything without the grace of God intervening in our lives. Rejoice in that, my friends. When it doesn't feel like you can rejoice in anything else, rejoice in that. Forget everything else and advance the gospel. That's what we're called to do. Father, we are thankful for the truth of your word. We're thankful that despite suffering, despite opposition, we are destined to be here at this time in these circumstances to share Christ with the people around us. And I pray that nothing would hinder us, that you would use our suffering, that you would use everything that is happening around us to chop these barriers down so that the gospel would go forward. We pray that it would, Father, not only here in this church and throughout our circles of influence, but all of the other churches in this community, in this region, in this state, who are preaching the truth of Christ. May your word go forth. We pray that you would build your church as you have promised. We know that you will allow nothing to stand in the way. 
Thank you for these moments together this morning, Father. May we not soon forget the things that we have heard as we go from here into what you have called us to this week. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for coming, folks. Have a great week.